This is the Creative Life Show, celebrating being highly creative in a less creative world. I'm Joanna Peters, coach and mentor to professional creatives and creative professionals, and I talk to other creatives, innovators and thinkers about how we create, face down our critics, stay on track, get noticed and paid, and do the work we want to do. And I'm sharing the progress of my own book, all about creative people and how we thrive. Hello and welcome. So here we are halfway through the year and the big thing that's happened since the last episode was, as I told you, I've been away on a writer's retreat. It was a solo retreat. I met up with friends in the evening, but otherwise it was just me. If you're new here, you may not know what my book's about. It's about how highly creative people work. There's a lot of evidence that creative people's brains are wired in a different way. And that means that we work slightly differently, we have slightly different needs, and I'm partly unpicking all that and turning it into a really useful guide for anybody who is creative. One of the things about creative people is that we get quite easily overwhelmed, either by what's going on around us or by simply taking on too much. And for me, the biggest benefit was just being able to take time away from daily life, from my wonderful family, my wonderful clients, all the other things going on in my business. But just to put all of that aside and be able to do nothing but focus on my book. So what we do as creatives is that we join dots. We make connections between things. And I really haven't found the headspace to do that recently. So we talk about diving in and it really felt like that. There were times when I was definitely floundering in water that felt way out of my depth and I just couldn't see how to get back to the shore. But I'd kind of taken away the ladder, really. I just had to keep going. I just had to dive down deeper, see what was there, see how I could make things work, how I could make sense of things. And there were times in those sort of three days, three and a half days, when it felt really uncomfortable. And I wasn't sure what I was doing there. Why? How could I justify that time or that time away from my coaching and the rest of my business? But it was okay because I actually came out way more engaged with it again and connected to it than I've been for really most of this year. So I shared a few more lessons on my own writing retreat at joannapeters.com on the blog and my newsletter. If you haven't signed up for it already, you can do that there. On to today's interview, which was just energetic and inspiring and enormous fun. Hello and welcome. So 21 years ago, Harriet Kelsall was making jewellery on the side of her day job in IT. Today, she's founder of a highly regarded bespoke jewellery company. She's chairman of the British National Association of Jewellers. She's very involved in ethics, particularly surrounding jewellery, and she was a driving force behind the launch of Fairtrade Gold worldwide. Harriet's won numerous awards, of which the latest, I think the latest, was for her first book, The Creative's Guide to Starting a Business, which was Startup Inspiration Book of the Year at the British Business Book Awards. Harriet, welcome. With all those hats and a number of others I haven't mentioned, do you still actually design jewellery yourself? (laughs) Do you know, that's funny. Someone asked me that the other day. Yes, I very much do. And uh, I really enjoy it. It's something I wouldn't want to to give up. Um, But I have a a big team of designers now. I think there are are 20 of us all together. So I don't design all of the jewellery we make, of course. But um, but yes, I I was just sketching this morning and yesterday, coming up with some new ideas to to put into our collections and, and pieces to make. So yes, I very much do. 
Yeah, as you said, I saw on the website you have, well, you said nearly 20 designers. How do you choose which projects you are going to take on? Oh, that's interesting. Well, sometimes they kind of choose me. A, a customer, a particular client might ask something that is quite a specialist area for me. Or sometimes a customer says, you know, please, can I actually work with Harry? Which is actually quite unusual. People don't usually ask to, to work with a particular designer and they're always welcome to. And then obviously I'll, I'll always say, yes, I'll just have another designer helping me follow the project through from then on. And and other times I'm very much involved in overseeing the creative direction of the ready-to-wear collections, particularly at the moment, because my head of design's on maternity leave. And so, you know, I'll, I'll get involved when I see a gap in the, in the collection that inspires me, then I'll enjoy getting myself a brief together and, and working on, on that, as well as delegating lots of interesting projects to the team as well. What does design do for you as a, as a person? My goodness, because that's a big question. <laughs> you know, it's funny, when I made my first ring when I was four years old, and my dad was, was a very talented jeweler, but he was also an NHS doctor. And so he used to make jewellery professionally, actually, but to sort of just to help ends meet. And I would sit down on the floor by his workbench and learn from a very early age what the difference between a cubic circle and a diamond was when he dropped things because he was tired. <laughs> um, and he, he said to me, um, I said to him one day, I really want to make something. I was four. And he said, okay, but you know, you're not just going to sit down and make something. What you're going to do is you're going to draw something and then you're going to make exactly what you draw. This isn't sculpture. This is design. And I was like, oh, okay. So I sat down and and drew all these sort of crazy rings. And and the one I came up with was a massive purple stone. And then the design had a a rabbit on one shoulder of the ring and a cat on the other, obviously. Obviously. Um, Every ring should have those feet. No, not really. Um, (laughs) And um, and then we set about making exactly what I drew. And of course, it was a bit crazy with this really high stone, but we made it anyway. And it was my fundamental lesson in design that, you know, designing, out planning what you're making and making sure it's makeable and making sure it's wearable and that it fulfills a brief. And for me, that part of the challenge really inspires me. You know, I don't want to sculpt. I don't want to just see see what happens, even if there's planning within that process. What I want is to challenge myself to answer everything about a brief perfectly. So when it comes to rings, you know, I, I don't, or, or pendants or whatever it may be, it's not only about I want it to be beautiful. The reason I wanted to be a bespoke jewelry designer is I wanted to work for someone else's style and really get into what makes them tick and use my own creativity to make sure that I love the piece as well and then make sure it's wearable, make sure it suits their lifestyle, make sure that it suits their budget. And the bringing of all of that together, I find really satisfying because it's more of a challenge to me than, you know, just make something beautiful. It doesn't matter what it costs, doesn't matter who it's for, just 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 do that. That's a very different kind of creative process, which I do enjoy sometimes. But for me, I like the challenge of, of the actual design element, the, the fulfilling of a brief. And you studied design, didn't you? Not jewellery design, but I think even industrial design. That's right. Yeah. So it was a BSc at Brunel University. And 
well at the time I think my mum had advised me not to follow a creative path because she she had done that and, and was at art college and then couldn't get a job and she oh long story but she she taught me that you know you really need to make sure you can be financially independent as a woman and so she sort of said do the engineering stuff because you can and you'll always get a job in that and you know what I now know is that I'm I'm dyslexic but that really hadn't entirely been invented then and so I I kind of thought well I'll stick as close to creativity as I can and I'll do industrial design, which is like product design. And it was a fantastic course. Uh, Paul Turnick ran the design element of the course, who was a huge inspiration. And also, I was able to work with Professor Eric Billet, who who was really making some changes and interesting vibrations in, in the world of sort of ethics and environmentally sensitive design, which was totally new then. And so um, it was a great foundation. And it was great to study the actual process of design. You know, what what does it mean when we actually fulfill a brief? And how do we actually get the brief in the first place out of a client? And, and then to look at all of the elements. So yes, you need to make something beautiful that creatively really works, but you also want to make sure that it fulfills other aspects. So for example, it's practical, it's not going to fall apart, it's not going to just be annoying every time you use it or wear it or whatever. So yeah, that's um, that's what I studied. And it was it was difficult, uh, very intense degree course, but very enjoyable. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't use something I learned on that course. So even though part of me thinks, oh, I wish I'd studied a even more, you know, sort of purely arti- artistic element, actually, I think it was just right for me and gave me a great foundation. Did you feel as though you were giving up on the creativity when you did it? No, no, I didn't. Um, I felt like it, I, especially because the course is actually very creative as well. It, you, you do study a lot of history of design and, and you do a lot of sort of quite blue sky thinking as well, or did then. I'm sure it's still, it's still a good course, I'm sure. So no, I didn't. I felt like I was building a platform so that I could be even more creative in that I wanted to be confident that whatever I was going to design was going to actually work and actually be useful. And I wanted to not have to think about that. I didn't want that not to be difficult. And so what I studied in materials, technology and all that, it was hard. It was hard. It was very techy. But now I just know how to make sure things don't break. And and that's <laughs> that means I can I can be creative within that framework and make sure that I actually give people things that they love, but that that are going to work for, for their lifestyle. So no, I, I don't think I did feel I gave up on on that. So a whole load of kind of light bulbs are going off my head as you're talking about about because looking we'll we'll come on to a book more later but your book is very much about giving a structure to making a business work it's very down to earth it's very sensible it's very accessible it says you know here's basically here's a brief you need to fulfill to make make your business work <laughs> yes a bit of design for a business that's funny funny you put it like that it's a good point yeah <laughs> So something you mentioned before we started recording this was the the process you went through of actually making that transition. Because although it sounds from here a very logical transition, oh yes, design, you go into jewellery. Actually, then you went and worked in in IT. Yes, I did. And and I, I sort of recruited, headhunted, if you like, off my course. Because I, I was lucky enough to do very well in my degree and I got this really big design prize and um, first class degree and I and they they sort of said come and work with us and I, I went to work with a, a computer company thinking that maybe maybe I wanted to design user interfaces and it turned out that I really didn't want to design user interfaces because <laughs> <laughs> you've got to remember this was all new new at the time you know user interfaces are a thing we know what that means now but back then that wasn't a term that was being used 
but all the time I was making rings and jewelry and, and, and on my course at university I studied a jewelry module which was great and expanded my knowledge making it for friends and I, I remember a bit later on after I'd been in in the IT industry for a while I'd managed to do quite well at that I was the engineering manager for one of the engineering managers for Tektronics UK in a, a film editing systems um, part of the company and so that was all going very well but it was a very big job and it was very technical and totally well not totally uncreative I think nothing's nothing's totally uncreative but it, it really didn't feel very creative and so I was just craving more and more the jewelry that I was making in my spare time I needed I needed more of that I needed to make stuff and so I was making all these commissions for friends and I think one of my first commissions was was for my boss at Tektronics a, a chap who's still a friend called Michael and he commissioned me to make a fireworks inspired brooch for his wife because they'd met um, it was their anniversary present and they'd met on bonfire night. And I love this process of, you know, oh, inspired by fireworks. It was such fun. And and being able to, because I knew him and I, I'd only met her a couple of times, but I knew her style and I knew just what what, what I thought would be right. And, and I, I presented these different sketch options and said, which one would you like? And he chose one and then I made it. And I didn't really realize at the time that that was something that wasn't really happening at the time. I just thought, this is how I'm working. But when I actually started jewelry business, when I because I knew I wanted to do that, I'll probably need to actually just do something different to this because this is just what I do. Whereas, you know, I've noticed that jewelry designers do things differently. They they make a collection and then they they sell it to a shop. So I guess that's what you have to do if you're a jewelry designer because bespoke jewelry design wasn't really happening very much at that point in time unless you had buckets of money you couldn't really get something designed and made for you you know you might know a, a bloke with a workbench who could make something for you but it wouldn't have that whole design element and really be, be made to suit you and to do everything you wanted it to do so I was doing this in my spare time but not realizing that that was actually my business idea and so I started to realize gradually <laughs> and there's a bit a bit about this in the book actually about some business advice that actually what I needed to do was really be true to the creativity that I really wanted to bring and I actually needed to follow this commission path but because that path wasn't a path that that I could watch and repeat and do I didn't believe it was a path and I think that's something that when you're innovating and actually bringing something new to a to a sector you don't realize that, that that's what you're doing because you just think well surely there's a reason no one else is doing this that it must be then that it's not possible because the idea seems so obvious to you that you can't believe nobody else has done it before and so it actually took me something like six months to realize that that was actually the business idea. What I was what I was doing in my spare time, this designing and making bespoke commissions was actually what what I needed to bring to the market. Yes, you say in the book there's something about you took you, you had 33 people on your waiting list before you realized that actually it was a business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 33 people. But I didn't know any of them. They were all friends of friends. And I thought, oh. That's a business, actually, isn't it? That's not just something I'm doing in my spare time whilst I work out what my jewelry business is. That is my jewelry business. And it took all of my creativity to get my head around that and to believe that creatively that was something that I could do, even though other people hadn't shown that path as existing. And so it was quite a, a sort of jump for me to, to believe, you know, could I actually bring something completely new? I think that's that's hard as a creative person to have that kind of confidence when you really feel that you're you're blazing a trail that 
you don't realize at the time that others are going to follow because of because of course you, you don't have the, the gift of hindsight yes and you don't know where you're blazing it to whether you're yes. through, through, across a <laughs> desert <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah but you talk about in the book that you took on your first employee relatively fast. I mean, jewelry you're making, I imagine then and still now, is phenomenally competitive. There's particular challenges about high cost of materials and the cuts taken about not selling directly and things. But it sounds as though you actually, once you got going, you scaled up quite rapidly. Yes, that's exactly what happened. I started to put my service online, which well, it makes me laugh now because, of course, websites and computers were really basic back then. It was over 20 years ago. But I had my first website in 1996. And I don't think there were, well, weren't many websites then. And there certainly weren't any jewelry websites. But I had this little page because I'd been in IT. I knew about this thing called the internet. And so I had this little page where I sort of advertised my service, if you like. And what was interesting was that I, well, I had a, I remember I had a, a customer who I'd made a tiara for, and she'd recommended me to a friend of hers in Scotland who'd been let down by a jeweler who was supposed to be making her a tiara for her wedding. And it was Thursday, and she needed a tiara by Saturday. And I'm sure you've been in that situation, Joanna, needing an emergency tiara before. It's, it's, it's an almost weekly occurrence. Yes. So she needed an emergency tiara. And so I said to her, listen, you know, because of course, in those days, you couldn't just take photos on your phone and shoot them across to people. You had to, you had to send things by snail mail. You couldn't even scan because it took so long. You couldn't then email that. It was too big for the emails at the time. So I said, listen, there's this thing called the internet. Have you heard of it? And she said, I have. My brother's friend's got that thing. And I said, um, well, if I put three or four TR options on there today, this was the Thursday, you look at them tonight, tell me which one you want. I'll make it tomorrow and it can still be in the post for you in time for your wedding. And because I can't just make anything, you know, I haven't even met you, you don't know what you want. And so she said, great. And she went, went and she dialed up and she did that. And she said, great, I'll have option one. That's perfect. And I made it and it arrived and she was delighted. And I, I really, at that point, I really understood that the internet was a really good thing. And I had a feeling it was going to catch on. And so, <laughs> so the reason I think my business grew quickly was because I advertised my service. And, and interestingly, at the time, most of the people who were my became my customers were all of the early adopters of the internet. So they were mainly teachers, professors, architects, and doctors, who were, I think, probably the first four the kind of industries that, that got on the line mm. first. And so I, I, I made a lot of rings for doctors, architects, and teachers because they were finding my website. <laughs> Was it always a plan in the back of your mind or the front of your mind to scale up? Mm, not really. I think I've always had a very strong vision of what I wanted, but that vision has changed a lot. So when I first started the business, my vision was to have a team of about four or five making jewellery, designing and making jewellery and, and, and doing that really, really well for people. But when I achieved that vision, I realised I wanted to scale it a bit more. And so my vision grew a bit and then I then I achieved that and, and then I wanted a shop and then I did that and then I wanted another shop. And so, and so I think, you know, my visions just kept growing, which I think is okay. A lot of people maybe have a vision that's so big they don't know how to bite, bite bits off it and work at one thing at a time. No, not work well. I never work one thing at a time. That's a bad example, but one chunk at a time. So yes, I, I, I guess I knew I wanted to scale it to, to a team of four or five, but I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have believed I was going to scale it to a team of forty and you know three branches as it is now. And maybe I'll go a bit further. 
It's interesting, isn't it? This is something that I cover with clients quite a bit. And I imagine that you do, I know you do a lot of mentoring creatives. This, we're encouraged to have a vision, have a vision of where you want to be. I want to to have my jewellery on the cover of Vogue. But actually, as you say, that's not necessarily particularly helpful. It's just so big. But it sounds as though you perhaps very naturally set yourself goals that were actually a lot more achievable, but just took them step by step. Well, in, in a way, I think that's what happened. But I but I think looking at it slightly differently, I see the vision for your business as separate from defining your own definition of success. So what I probably did first was to try to define my own definition of success. And that meant, you know, so for example, some people might feel that they're really creatively successful when they can just design the things they love and and somehow make a living out of it around their family. And other people may feel that they're only going to be successful when they're a household name, you know, well brand. So I want to give some your own definition of success, which somehow brings light to what your vision might be. And for me, my definition of success hasn't really changed, but the vision for the business has. And so I suppose I see those things as slightly separate and maybe that's what helps not have a vision that's sort of too big to cope with but you know I'm a great believer in you know I think it's good to have a big vision but then you you do need to then break it down into into manageable steps and take take those steps as slowly or quickly as works for you. So what is success for you? Well again I say it hasn't changed it probably has evolved I think when I was starting out I would have said creative success for me was really achieving those design briefs for the the pieces I was making for my for my customers but actually now it's very similar but I feel that yes I still get a lot of creative fulfillment from doing that and I love it but I also get an equal amount of creative fulfillment from almost working on my team and people in the industry in the same way. So helping them to fulfill their own potential and to and to make sure that we're all that, you know, like the orchestra being the the sum of some of the much bigger than the sum of the parts would it would actually lead you to believe. For me, if I can get a few things going and get some amazing collaboration going so that we're we're really working together to me that that feels really successful too both creatively and um and in other ways so i suppose i suppose those those things have evolved and and changed as well the first chapter in your book is defining success isn't it is that where you always start when you work with other creative businesses it it is now it wasn't at first you know, it all used to be rather organic and we just chat about whatever the business I was mentoring, I, I just mentor voluntarily, not as much as I'd like to because I'm quite busy, but um, but it's been great fun and very inspiring over the years. And so I, I tended, at first it was just sort of rather organic, but as, as, I, as I met more businesses and chatted to more people, I noticed all these common threads in the kinds of things they were facing and and that actually the things that I said that made sense to them that they they kind of went off and and ran with and did better with and so I I sort of came to realize that actually helping them think about their their definition of success was a really good place to place to start and also because you know as a mentor I wanted to know that you know what are you wanting here? Are you just wanting to work around, you know, around a few hours a week or are you actually wanting to really drive forward? And either is fine. It's just I sort of need to know where you are to give you the right kind of level of advice and support. So, yes, I think now I I, I do try to start with that question. 
what does success mean to you? Yes. What does it mean to you? And that's something that, you know, no one can answer it straight away. And and even when you think you know, it, it's sort of quite involved. <laughs> but, you know, it's just to sort of start that thought process off. So going back to you for a moment, so I'm really struck by something you say in your book, which is, I never consider that I can't do something. This concept just isn't in my mindset. <laughs> and you make a lot of references to being a very positive person. And that's that's really clear talking to you. Do you consciously work on your mindset? No, <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think I do. There are very few times that I feel bleak. I have had those times, and they're usually, you know, much more about personal and emotional things. But when it comes to achieving something as a business, I think I just don't. I think partly it's one of the benefits that dyslexia brings to me. We're really good problem solvers, and so when you kind of become grown up and you've you've always been a good problem solver then whatever we want to do there's a way of doing it or we change the problem you know we change the problem and solve a slightly different but connected problem and so you do you do kind of just realize that all of these obstacles that life and work bring to you you just need to sometimes look at them a bit differently and there's always a solution so so I think maybe it comes from the way my mind works rather than working on trying to be positive Right. So I'm hearing that if you are, say, approaching what looks like a bump in the road, well, it's like <laughs> there might be any number of approaches you might take to that. Yeah. Mm. So it might, yes, it might just be, yeah, get over the bump. It's going to be tough, but we'll do it this way. Or it might be, do you know what? That's not actually a bump. It's actually going to send us up to a slightly different level or we're going to go around it. And that means we've got to go through the grass, but that's going to be interesting because we're going to do this, this and this. You know, so, so we look at that bump from every angle let's tunnel underneath it let's let's imagine it's not there let's see if we can level it and, and you know if you can't then maybe there's a, there's always a way <laughs> there's always a way do you tend to look forward to anticipate the bumps that might be approaching in some ways but i don't dwell on that too much because i think that can lead to a lot of procrastination and overthinking yes yeah, some bumps you really do know are going to happen you know you know you're going to reach the threshold for VAT or you know you're going to have to take on your first employee and you need to understand what that means or you know the industry is going to face a big problem when the gold price goes up or whatever, whatever. there's some you know about but most of the problems that actually are the ones that come along and really get you are the ones you don't know about you know there's the staff member that lets you down the consultant that you know runs off with your money or or whatever it may be and and though you can't really anticipate those and those are the ones that are often the most challenging but usually you end up after those challenges in a much better place but it can be hard to hard to realize that at the time when you're going through the hell of trying to solve it has your approach to those kind of problems changed over the years yes i remember a real moment of that changing when i used to think you know, I'm a designer. I want to sit and do this lovely creative stuff all the time. And as, but as a, as this business leader, people keep bringing me other problems like, oh, someone wants to leave or, you know, oh, someone's, you know, let us down and this thing hasn't arrived that we need this stone or whatever it may be. And I used to think of those as things that were in my way, that were obstacles that were just in my way of being creative. And I, I think I almost remember the day, I couldn't tell you when it was, but I remember a day when I suddenly realized those problems were part of the job and that I needed to just use all that creative energy that I was using in my in my actual jewelry creation. I needed to also use them in that 
the, the, you know, being the problem solver in the business at that stage before my business was good enough to, you know, big enough to employ a manager and so on. So I think it was a, a big difference to me when, when actually I realized that I needed to, I needed to look at my business creatively, not just my, my jewelry creatively. So although we said that you don't work on your mindset, it sounds like there was one really big switch in the way you thought about it, which changed everything. Yeah, it just, it, it sort of, you know, when you just get those light bulb moments and I thought, oh, you know, so it wasn't something I sort of worked on. It just, I think maybe just experience just suddenly occurred to me, oh, this is your job. This is your job. This isn't stuff that's in the way. This is where you need to be just as creative as you are when you make a ring or a, a beautiful pair of earrings. You need to be, you need to bring that to to these problems too. Why did you decide to write a book? When I was mentoring lots of creative businesses over the years, I noticed I was saying, I was often giving them the same kind of advice and the same sorts of things were working for them. And they they were often facing the same sorts of challenges as each other, even though they were maybe quite different businesses. Like one would be a handbag business and one would be a perfumier and one would be a, a jeweler and, you know, one would be doing sort of an acting career or something. I, I found that that actually the same sort of advice worked for all of those businesses, there were common threads. And so I think I, I sort of thought it would be very interesting to see if I can bring these together and actually write them down because maybe then they could help even more creative people be successful and actually really, you know, flourish and enjoy the creativity within their work. And I, I kind of thought that that actually maybe if I if I can sort of sort of put this together in a way that that can help other people. Maybe I can I can help really enhance some small creative businesses because I'd noticed that there's an awful lot of support and advice and emphasis at the moment on STEM businesses and women in engineering and and those things which are great. I mean, I'm all for that, <laughs> but actually there's not much emphasis and support on creative business. And we're really good at creative business here in the UK. We're really good at innovation and we're really good at, at some creating stuff. But it's something that we don't really almost even know we're good at. So we don't we don't shine the spotlight on it very much. And so I noticed that, you know, if you want advice from, you know, as a STEM business, you, you've got lots of grants and things that can help you achieve that. Whereas um, if you want that kind of thing as a creative business, it's much harder to find the advice. So, yeah, I thought maybe if I can write this down, I can help those creative business businesses get a leg up. It sounds as though you were quite clear by almost your own brief for it, by what you wanted the book yes. to achieve. <laughs> It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound like that, but um, <laughs> is that I, wisdom I in retrospect? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I just went through this bonkers process, which is yeah a bit embarrassing, but I just kind of I just wrote the book and I just started writing it and then finished writing. It took about a year, and amongst everything else I was doing, and then when I got to the end, I realised it was rubbish. It, it just wasn't the book I really needed to write. It was you know it didn't have enough examples. It it just wasn't engaging it didn't have enough case studies and I thought I just need to start again and and ironically what I'd done is is almost the same as what I did when I started the business I'd sort of thought oh I need to write a book so I'll do it like other writers do and writers can do things in straight lines and they can spell so I better sort of start at the beginning and finish at the end and actually what I really needed to do was exactly what I do 
as a dyslexic creative, which is to do lots of things all at once. So I, I wrote one paragraph here, one paragraph there, one note there, one note here, and had this crazy mind map jigsaw going on of all these bits of book. And I pursued it and gradually it all came together like a three-dimensional jigsaw. So yeah, I would like to tell you I had that vision right from the start, but but I really didn't. I didn't know quite how it was going to be until it started to come together with that jigsaw. Did you get help to shape it from your publisher or from a, another coach? I, I paid a professional reader at one point to read it, which was helpful. It cost about £100 or something, and they read it and gave me some feedback. That was about halfway through the process, about a year and a half in. And then when I found the right publisher, because I, I, you know, I didn't know what I know now, which is that you're supposed to write a synopsis and then approach publishers and then they say yes, and then you write the book. I just thought, oh, you just write a book and then find a publisher. So I... <laughs> I wrote the book <laughs> and once I once I was happy with it, I was like, great, I've written the book. Now I need to find a publisher and found that it was really difficult because um, so many publishers, you know, say that you've got to have an agent. And I didn't feel that was appropriate for a business book. I didn't think you should need an agent for a business book. So I kind of thought that was wrong, but I found it really hard to get through the sort of mess of the, the sort of publisher's front end. Yes, it's a real, so many gatekeepers, aren't there? Mm, yeah, and and I, I they kept saying, no, we only talk to agents. I said, but it's a business book, that's bonkers. And, and so I just had to break down these barriers in various ways. And in, I got it to, I think, about three or four publishers, and, and two of them were very interested in publishing the book, which was great. And once I got through those, those gatekeepers... And then it was a matter of deciding, you know, what, what was which was the right publisher for the book. And um, Constable published the book, who are a division of Little Brown. And they were amazing. And I worked with the fantastic Nikki Reed there, who just went through my book. And she's just great because she's so clear, like the clarity of working with a really good publisher that knows, you know, that bit you need to tighten, that bit you just, you know, just, I think you need, you've got too many case studies there, shorten that. And, and, you know, just sort of goes through these sort of global points. And then you think, oh my goodness, that's right. She's right. And you, you go through the sweat of sort of changing this and, you know, putting these case studies in a slightly different form, form. And then you go through the sort of days of work of that and you come out and you think, oh my goodness, it's better. She's right. You know, what, what else <laughs> is she going to say? And you, you find that your, your, but your book is improving and improving. And then I had this very long suffering editor. Who, who was who was great, John? Who, who of course had to deal with my um, my spelling issues and the fact that I'm really bad at, at proofreading because you know dyslexic people can't really read a line of text. It was very interesting working with a publisher, and I found it really inspiring to the fact that you know we we all wanted the book to be better, and it ended up a lot better than it was when I when I met them, which was great. If you had to narrow down your life to just one creative activity, perhaps the, the mentoring or the designing or the managing your staff or the, the book writing, which one would it have to be? I don't think I could choose one because I do think that when you're a creative person, it almost doesn't matter what you create. What matters is that you create. And so for me, you know, I've really enjoyed creating businesses. I've really enjoyed creating jewellery and I've really enjoyed creating a book. And I've really enjoyed in creating great mentoring relationships and helping those businesses create better. And so I don't think I could stick to one thing. I don't think I'd be very good at that. And again, I think it's partly the dyslexic brain where we're really, really good at doing lots of things at once, but we're really rubbish at doing one thing at a time, which is which is a great, a great thing when you're running a business because you can never do one thing at a time when you're running a business anyway. So dyslexic people do make quite good entrepreneurs because we're natural delegators and, and we love doing more than thing, think one thing at once. 
Yes. So I often ask my guests what they have in their life to keep productive and motivated. I'm guessing that one of the answers for you would be having really good people around you to do those other bits that... Yeah, yeah, I do have some brilliant people around me and they can be very long suffering sometimes because I can be quite annoying to work with if I know something's wrong, but I'm finding it hard to articulate what it is that's wrong about it. But they, they're just, they're just wonderful. And the team are amazing and they all do their bit. And, you know, we often sort of use that story of, you know, you, you know, one, one stonemason is, is banging at a stone and trying to, you know, trying to get this stone bit right. And it's all very annoying because he wants to go home for, for supper. But the other stonemason, the really brilliant stonemason is actually, he knows he's doing something that's helping to build a cathedral. And so, you know, we, we all club together and we all do our bit and we all share the same values, which is vital. And then, then it all feels easy. That's wonderful. I love that, that idea, that reminder, actually, mm-hmm. of our values and the power of connection. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think writing down the values for, for any business is really key. That The day we did that, everything became easier because we could employ by those values and we could hold up every piece of marketing material to those values and see if it fit. And decisions got easier. So yeah, that, that values thing is really important. And you, you say that very publicly, don't you? you? You have that on your website. Yeah, we've got our sort of list of values because, you know, I, I want people to know that I'm proud of them. Um, they're who we are as a group of people. And it's great that when people come to work with us, they look at that and think, oh, that's me. That's the place for me. And, and when people feel they fit, they do. <laughs> which is wonderful. And again, you're doing what's true to you, which is mm-hmm. what where you, it sounds like you started out actually saying, this isn't the, the path I need to tread. I can tread my own way. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it takes a little while to really believe that. And it, it's it's amusing to me that having having struggled with that journey as an entrepreneur, if you like, and then having repeated that same journey when writing the book by sort of doing it wrong and then and then finding that the way to do it right was by following my own path. You know, you can you can forget that as soon as you come out of, of the sort of way you're usually doing something. We all need to be reminded of that in every aspect of our lives. Harriet, where can people connect with you? Oh, thank you. Yes, they can look at our website, which is hkjewelry.co.uk, HK standing for my initials, jewelry.co.uk. And also on our social networks, if you if you search for Harriet Kelsall on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you'll find you'll find our accounts. You'll often find two accounts. There's one for the business and one for me personally. And so, yeah, depending on which or of those you want to follow, please do follow both. <laughs> and I'll put those links up at creativelifeshow.com under this episode and also include the link to Harriet's book, The Creative's Guide to Starting a Business, which is a really terrific book, actually. I'm not sure that I've done quite enough justice to it in this conversation. It's a really clear, well-written, really easy to read, but really full of wise advice, particularly, I think, for product-based businesses. Yeah. If you're actually making something or thinking about making something to sell it. Yeah, that, that's very much what, who I wrote it for, people people making beautiful things. Although, interestingly, the, the lady who wrote the forward, kindly wrote the forward for me, Dr. Shima Barakat, who's the head of entrepreneurship at Cambridge University, she, she's been recommending it to, to STEM businesses because she likes the way that it helps you think about any business creatively. So I think it can go a bit wider than that, depending on what, what you need from it. Yes, I think a lot of it was very applicable to others. But I think particularly if you're a product-based business, this is the book you need to go to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And as well, if you'd like to get a heads up every new episode on The Creative Life Show, come and sign up for updates at creativelifeshow.com. Harriet, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been really fascinating. I love this sort of this sense of so many projects going on, but cutting your own path 
but still sort of managing things according to a plan, fulfilling the brief. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed, really enjoyed talking to you. It's been really interesting. Thank you all for listening. So have a wonderfully creative week. I hope you can take some of today's inspiration with you and see what it does for your creative work you're doing over the next few days. And I'll see you back here very soon. Bye.